is uh, talk about the idea, if you had one opportunity to hear a gospel sermon, if it's the first time you're ever visiting a church, you know, know you'll never be back again, what are the absolute essential things for you to know about the Word of God and what has God revealed in His Scriptures for us to know and to live? And so what it does is allows us to cut out all the not filler, but all the extra information about what a, the Christian life's supposed to be, all the illustrations, all the parables, all the things that we learn about what a Christian truly is, and just boil it down to its essential nature. What do you need to know about the Word of God in a short period of time? So this morning what I want to do is talk about the idea of what the Scripture has to say if you boil it down to four simple points. The reason why I want to talk about this this morning is it's sometimes in life, when we're out in the world and we have a conversation with someone, you're at Sam's Club or Walmart or Target or whatever, and you strike up a conversation, you've got maybe five, maybe ten minutes to talk about your faith. It's so easy for us to say, hey, you should come to church and check it out for yourself. And they say, well, I don't know, I have a church I go to already, or I grew up in the church and I've kind of fallen away, or it's not interesting to me anymore. That's one way to do it, which can be successful. But if you have a conversation with someone, and you can get to something maybe a little bit deeper in your first conversation. That might be a way to get your foot in the door to have that conversation with someone. So if you're unable to really just think about the the panoramic view of what God has revealed in the scripture, there's a lot of details in there. And it's good because we can talk about that book all the rest of our lives, right, together among ourselves and try to share that message with the world. But if you're trying to just boil down Christianity to what it truly is, and its essential nature, I would personally recommend starting with these four ideas. And you can branch out if time allows you to. Let's begin with a foundational truth of Scripture that resounds from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. The first thing I want to just drive home for us, and if we don't know this already, then I'm not sure what we've been doing here in church. The first one is, God loves you. We have to start with the love of God. And just in your mind for a minute, just think back to all the other pantheons of God's from the Canaanites to the Grecians to the Romans, all the gods of the universe that people have made up to try to explain this world and its beautiful definition and why we're here and what's a sense of morality, all of them begin with the idea that a god is angry at you. That's why something bad happened to you. And you have to appease that god that his wrath might be turned away from you and he might bless you if you give him enough things to show that you're humbling yourself before him. It's not the case with the God of Scripture. Our God doesn't require of us to appease his anger by sacrificing over and over again. The main motivational system is not wrath, but instead love. In fact, the word religion itself comes from the root of Latin that means to bind or to to bring back together. We have a relationship with God in the beginning. That relationship is severed by sin, and God has reached down from heaven through the personhood of his son Jesus to try to bring us back together. God loves you. Our verse for today, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Paul put it this way, 
What shall we say to these things? If God is for us or in our corner, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So the way Paul thought about it through inspiration, right, Luke, was the idea that God so loved us that instead of restricting us and holding us back, he wants to give us freely all these things through the grace that we find in his Son. In Romans chapter 8, jumping down to verse 38 now, Paul ended his great discourse from chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 with this summary thought. Romans 8, 38, Because I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord or Master. Paul summarizes chapter 5 by saying, In one man, Adam, like him we all die in sin. But through one person, Jesus, we might have life. Chapter 6 is, don't you know how we accessed the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by being baptized in his name, by putting on him in baptism, to start over fresh, that we might have that new life that Jesus gave us access to. Romans chapter 7, although we're in Christ, we're still at war with ourselves when it comes to the choice of going back into sin or continuing in the, in the work of the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And now all the way to verse 38, we will never be separated from the love of God. That's the gospel. In John chapter 3 and verse 16, a verse that many people can quote off the top of their heads. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. God shows his love to us continually and constantly through reminding us about what he sacrificed his Son for our sins. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Ephesians 2. In verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, folks, I've been waiting for that for two months. We had a lady in Charleston when I was there. Whenever I would give you a passage, her phone or Bible app would start reading it immediately, and I'd just point the microphone at her and say, Keep going. It's not happened here yet. I was waiting for it, and it's finally happened. Okay. Ephesians 2, verse 4. You don't read it. I'll read it for you, okay? But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses or sins, he made us alive together with Christ. And he reemphasizes, by grace you have been saved. Now, we had Camp Canaan, if you don't know. We've mentioned it a thousand times already. We had Camp Canaan. And um, I had a couple of jobs I had to fill in my role as quote-unquote director, right? Uh, one of the jobs was I got some 12-year-old boys. The first day it was just three of them, and they were a delight. <laughs> the next day, I got five. And most of them were a delight. But we had two boys 
when you put them together, it was not so delightful. It's like dynamite in a lit match. You put them together, guess what's going to happen? A lot of fun, no focus. A lot of fun, no focus. And so if we're talking our second day when I had those five boys, again, mostly delightful. The main point was Noah and the flood. And I felt like the main thing I wanted to drive home was how that whole narrative begins. The narrative begins with this great illustration about how bad things were on the earth. Mankind had devolved from their place of the greatest created thing in the garden, having dominion and rule over all the earth and all the animals and all the creeping things. That was the shining point of creation. God saw man made in his image and said it was very good, right? And then you fast forward to where they were and the intentions of all their hearts were only evil continually. Not the way God designed it. And he said he wanted to destroy the earth and start over fresh by wiping it with water. He wanted a flood to come and just wash all that away. Now, if you just read the narrative and you miss some key verses, you say, well, if God's plan was to just wipe out sinful man, as soon as Noah got off the ark, he planted a vineyard, got drunk, and there were some sinful things that took place directly afterwards. So if God's plan was to wipe sin off the earth by water, it seems like God failed. Does God fail at that kind of stuff? Absolutely not. So what was the point of the flood if not to destroy sin from the face of the earth? Well, I love verse 8 of that context because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And despite the sinful generation in which he was living, despite his own sinfulness in light of a holy and perfect God, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What that is is a picture that even though we don't deserve salvation, God gives us grace. Why does he give us grace? Because he loves us. If you've missed that from the scripture, we've missed the narrative entirely. Finally, John just, just expresses in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has given or bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. John just has to break his thought and say, What a wonderful blessing it is that God loved us so much that we can be a part of his family again, to be bound back to him through this religion, through the personhood of his son. So what's the first thing? If you have a conversation with someone about the Bible, what's the main driving motivation behind the good news of Jesus Christ? God loves us. Secondly, he has prepared a place for you. When you go back to the garden and you see the creation. You see him making the garden, and then you see him making man. The man had a place on this earth. And we're all born in this world, and as we go through life, we find comfort, we find pleasure, we find goodness, we find the blessings of God. But do you ever just feel like it isn't quite right? Sure, we have moments of happiness and joy and bliss and we have a house that's nice and we take care of it and God's blessed us with that and maybe you've got some property or maybe you've got a lake and you love just killing fish all day, whatever your pleasure is. Yeah, it's great. But it just feels like for every joy that you find, it seems fleeting. 
and, and permanent and just passing. That's us on the inside longing to be with our God. There is joy here. There is peace here. There is goodness here. There are blessings here for sure. But we're just strangers and pilgrims, as Peter said, traveling through this world waiting to go home. And John chapter 14. I love John 14 verses 1 through 6 so much. But unfortunately, I usually only turn here for funerals. It can give us comfort, no doubt. But while we're not talking about a funeral, let's go to John 14 anyway. Is that okay? John 14, verse 1. Now, I want to set the stage a little bit for us. Whenever I read this, it's easy for me to just roll through it and say, see, there you go, and just prove my point. But we're missing some nuance here. Jesus knows who he is. He knows what the kingdom's all about. He also knows he's got his friends with him at this point. Three and a half years of working with this guy, seeing what he can do, healing all the people, casting out demons, refuting the Pharisees and Sadducees, being persecuted left, right, and center, welcoming in the Samaritans to the fold by faith, and then they are waiting for Jesus to go up to Jerusalem, kick out the Romans, take that throne of David, and be the next king of Israel. He would do none of that because they were looking at the wrong thing. They were looking for a physical kingdom like King David had back in the day, the good old days in their minds. They weren't looking for the future of what the spiritual kingdom would be about. And he's trying to let his friends know that what they're expecting is not going to happen. The unexpected will happen. He's tried to warn them the entire time, but they're not picking up the message yet. And he knows he's going to be leaving his friends alone on this earth for a little while. And he wants to give them comfort. John 14, beginning in verse 1. Jesus knew they were already concerned. Let not your heart be troubled. Guys, don't worry. Don't fret. I'm still in control. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't that way, if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Have you ever gotten home from a long trip? You're away for a couple of days too long. <laughs> you know, outstage, you're welcome. And you finally get back home. You drop your bags at the door. You go into your bedroom. Your bed is made for you. That feeling of, I'm back in my place. I'm back in my home. These are my things. It's ready and waiting for me. That's what Jesus is trying to convey to his followers and his friends. In my father's house are many rooms. I know you want your mansions. The word is rooms. I'll have to get over it, all right? A room is good enough in God's house. Many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you, that where I am, there you may be also. 
And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Now, one of my favorite disciples to talk about is this guy named Thomas. Doesn't say a whole lot. I love those guys that don't say a whole lot, but when they do speak up, they've got something to say. Thomas is one of those guys. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? (laughs) No doubt their minds are still like, okay, you're going to Jerusalem. You're going to make sure that we have all the best places in there because you're now a king, and we're now your sergeants or generals, and you're going to prepare for us a place to go to war. We don't know how you're going to get there, but okay, we're we're with you so far, but we don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way. Jesus said, I am the way. Now, don't miss it. Don't miss it. You've got Jesus, who we've formerly identified as God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus is God. And here you have God telling his best friends, where am I going? I am the way. Moses, after 40 years, decided it was a great idea to be a leader of the Israelites. He was going to help his Hebrew brethren. He was going to kill the taskmasters. He was going to start a revolution. He didn't get past two people of his own nation, his own kin. He's afraid of Pharaoh. He runs for his life out to Midian, finds a wife, finds a father-in-law, thankfully, becomes a shepherd. He shepherds his father-in-law's sheep for 40 more years, 80-year-old man walking up a mountain and sees a bush on fire. No doubt, not that surprising. The problem was the fire wasn't stopping. That bush was still on fire, but the bush wasn't consumed. Well, that's strange. He walks over to it, and a voice cries out, Take off your sandals from your feet, where you're standing is holy ground. It's not just any ground you're standing on now. You're standing before God. He's told, remember that plan you had to start a revolution and save your people? I like that plan, and now you're ready. You've taken care of hard-headed sheep for 40 years. You're almost ready for the people. (laughs) And he goes, Lord, what if I go and they don't believe me? Who do I say sent me? What's the evidence that I have to prove that our God called me to this task. He says, use my name. My name is, I am that which I am. And here is Jesus, all these centuries later, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. First and foremost, we begin with the greatest motivating factor in the world. God loves us. Secondly, Jesus has prepared a place for us. Third, God has told us how to be prepared for him. God's done everything thus far. God loved us. God prepared a way for us. But we have things as a part of our covenant relationship with him to hold up on our end to make this work. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 15, There's little statements from Jesus that whenever you read them in the gospel accounts, should make your ears perk up. I mentioned one in Bible class this morning. 
Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, that's him saying, hey, the thing I'm about to say right now is so important, it has more than one truth or meaning behind it. You better pay attention. I'm sure they did, but they never got the point. <laughs> I'm sure I wouldn't have either in the, in the, moder- in the day. There's one more. 11, uh, Matthew eleven fifteen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What that really is, in my mind, is him saying, are you listening? Or are you with me, as I say sometimes? Are you following the train of thought that I just laid down for you? That shows the importance of not just listening to the message of God and Jesus, which I hopefully you do. I'm standing here for all this time. Hopefully you're paying some attention to me, right? Even Kay's awake back there. With her vertigo medication, I mean, I'm sure. I, I was going to give her a pass to take a nap, but here she is awake and alert. But not just paying attention to the message, but did you hear it? Did you get it? Did you understand the nuance and the meaning of this good news? In Mark chapter 16, verse 16, Mark's gospel account ends in this way. Spoiler alert for our Mark Bible study. <laughs> but Mark 16, 16 He who believes and is immersed or baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, I've had a lot of discussions over a lot of years with folks about this verse. I don't know what it is about this verse. I mean, I read it, I'm like, yep, got it. But some folks say, well, 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 that second clause, it says if you don't believe, you're going to be condemned. Not if you're not baptized. I'm like, okay, let me just rephrase it for you. Maybe this will help. What is enough to save you from the first clause? Belief and immersion. What's enough to condemn you from the second clause if you don't believe in the first place? To me, that sounds pretty simple. I'm no rocket scientist, right? But here we are. Hearing is essential. Not just hearing, but understanding, perceiving. And then believing what you just heard is imperative. And then following through with the idea of starting your life fresh in a spiritual sense by being born again of the water and the Spirit. John chapter 3. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, I love this text. I could spend too too long here, but I'm not going to hold you up too long. In Acts 17, you've got Paul. He was run out of basically Greece. By the Jews that followed him from town, to town, to town, trying to refute his good news about Jesus Christ. It got so heated, Paul said, you know what, I am out of here. I'll get on this boat and go that direction, and you guys get on the next boat and follow me. i got to get out of here. So he leaves by himself. He ends up in Athens, of all places. A place where they were very interested about hearing new and exciting things. Hearing gossip and rumors and superstitions, and Paul used that as an opportunity to talk about Jesus. He said, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. Hey, you care about God, you care about the relationship with the, the spiritual world? Great. I've seen all your images to all the gods that are here, and you even have one in case you miss somebody, they wouldn't get too mad at you, your God of wrath, to the unknown God. 
This God that you don't know about, let me explain who he is. Dropping down into the text, Acts 17, verse 30, talking about this unknown God to them. He explains, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, meaning worshiping all these idols that don't really exist. I love that you're religious, but you've got it all wrong. That ignorance or lack of knowledge God has overlooked until now, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And he has signified this by pointing out the judge. And this judge he has brought back from the dead. That's where he lost some people. (laughs) That's the good news that lost people. Now, hearing the word of God is essential. Believing it and obeying it is essential. This word repent, I can't tell you how many years went by of my preacher back home saying, you got to repent. I go, absolutely. Whatever in the world that is, I should do it. It's one of those fancy religious words, in my mind, at least. I've never heard the word repent before in my life, before walking in that church building. Repentance is extremely easy to illustrate. Jesus had a parable one time, talking about the idea of repentance. He goes, hey, we've got a father with two sons. He tells the first son to go out into the field today and to work. The son says, yep, I'll do just that but he doesn't go to the field and work. You've got the second son who says, no, I'm not going to go into the field and work. But he changed his mind about that, and then he went into the field and worked. Which one did the will of the father? The one who said, yes, I'll do it, and didn't? Or the one who said, no, I won't, and then did it? The one who said, no, I won't, changed his mind, and then changed his actions. In the King James Version, instead of saying all those fancy words, he just says he repented. He changed his mind, he changed his actions, and he went into the field and worked like his father told him to. God says that all men everywhere are to repent. What does that mean? When it comes to sin in your life, you need to change your mind about it and then change your actions. Easy peasy, right? In Acts chapter 2, You have the very friends of Jesus who are being encouraged in our passage in John 14. They were starting to figure out their idea of what the kingdom looked like was vastly different than what Jesus meant. And there they are in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, a feast day for the Jews, and it was the perfect opportunity. You've got zealous, religious, Jewish people who knew the scriptures. You've got the Son of God who fulfilled all those scriptures, who was just killed, buried, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father up high. And here they are, prepped, primed, to hear the good news about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter speaks up, all the others with different languages, and he preaches the first full good news message, gospel message of the kingdom of God. At the very end of convicting them that they were guilty of killing the Son of God, therefore sinning, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? How do we respond to the information that God loves us? He has prepared a place for us. What do we need to do to be prepared to go to that home 
finally in the end. Acts 2.38, Peter said, Repent and let every one of you be immersed in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now that phrase remission there is a bit unlike the idea of remission of cancer in our culture today. The idea of remission here literally means forgiveness, full atonement, something foreign to the Jewish nation because they could not have full atonement. By sacrificing bulls and goats and calves, they could have an extension. They could have one more year. One more year of forgiveness. Right? Full remission is through the good news of Jesus Christ. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Number one, God loves you. Do you know that? Number two, God's prepared a place for you in his Father's house. He's waiting for you when we're done with this journey. He's told us clearly what we need to do in this covenant to be prepared to go to that home. And then finally, he's waiting for you. Let's go to Revelation. I need to set a timer up here for myself because that whole 9, 30, 10, 30 thing's throwing me off. Let's keep going? Okay. Revelation, chapter 21. Hopefully... You're mindful of the narrative of the Garden of Eden. God's got a way about him where he likes completion, things to come full circle, things to be finished. In the Garden, what we find is a picture of a perfect creation. God made it for us to live, to thrive, to dwell, to tend, to keep, and it was perfect. He gave us free will. We could choose to be a part of that relationship if we wanted to, or we could choose to rebel, right? It's human nature. We love to rebel. The good news is God knew that. He gave us a way out and a way to restore that dynamic that we had in the garden all the way back in the beginning. It's been a long time coming, but here's the plan. Revelation 21.1, John says, Then... I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw this holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I don't know about you, if you're married... What was it like when you were standing at the front of the aisle and that music started and the people stood up, those doors finally opened and your beautiful bride started walking towards you? John says, I saw the new Jerusalem. Guys, it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And it was for us. 
I heard a loud voice from the throne. Isaiah 7, if you want a full picture of what that throne room looks like, it's a little impressive. Isaiah saw it and said, I'm, woe to me, I'm undone. I don't deserve to be here. A voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. If you go through scripture, that theme is hit time and time and time and time again. It's all God ever wanted. And John said, I saw it, guys. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? Because the former things have passed away. And then he who was seated on the, uh, seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, because these words are trustworthy and true. If it were not so, I would have told you, the same God said. God loves you. He's preparing a place for you right now. He's told us how to be prepared. It's not that hard. And he's waiting for you to come home. If you're looking for a way to summarize scripture, it's a good place to start. This morning, you've heard the gospel. You've heard the good news. If you've not yet held up your end of the covenant and prepared yourself for all these wonderful things, what in the world is stopping you? We are not guaranteed another moment of this life, and there is nothing more important in this world than being with our Heavenly Father. If you've not yet obeyed the gospel, please respond. If you're someone who's known these things, but you've forgotten them, you've lost your focus, lost your purpose, now is the perfect time to reevaluate where you are in light of God's word. He's waiting for you to come home. If anyone has a need to respond, please do so now. We stand and we sing.